Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, Very exciting first-time guest today um, who... um, you know, the internet is weird. Sometimes you become friends with people uh, over the internet and it turns out the uh, instantiates itself in corporeal life. Um, so uh, as listeners know, I'm a big fan of the Ukraine, uh, the latest podcast from the Telegraph. And I started DMing with uh, one of its hosts, a guy named Francis Dernley. I believe it at first mostly to complain about the incredibly barbaric way they use the English language over there. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, and then when I went over to London, we had lunch. He gave me a great time, showed me a great time with him and some of his colleagues at the Oxford Cambridge Club, and which I really enjoyed right. a great deal. I wish I could remember more of it, Jonah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, price we pay. And then uh, you actually stayed at my mother's historic estate in Weehawken, New Jersey, when you went to cover the UN. So I finally got you on the, my podcast. So uh, Francis Dernley. It was wonderful. Uh, you are a assistant comment editor at The Telegraph. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. What does that mean for like Americans? Because assistant comment editor is not a thing here. Right. I So I think when I say, by the way, thank you very much for having me, Jonah. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk to your listeners. Comment in the UK is basically another way of saying opinion or op-ed. So uh, I'm involved in editing, commissioning and writing opinion pieces in essence. Uh, I know I get a lot of listeners from Ukraine The Latest who write in and say, are you just editing comments all day that are below the line in articles? So I say, no, 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 that's not what I'm doing. I'm talking to columnists. I'm I'm talking to former prime ministers sometimes on pieces they'd like to write for us, all sorts of of people on the subjects of the day. Of course, I have a particular interest now in geopolitics. And so I'm quite often on the phone with people in Ukraine, in Gaza, with former heads of the British Army, for instance, former defense secretaries. And we're talking about what they would like to, well, I suppose, first of all, their insights, which can sometimes be informative, even if we're not going to be commissioning something specifically from them. Um, But usually it's because we've got an idea in mind, or they have, that we would like to publish in our paper. And not only, of course, in in print, but also uh, in physical, uh, uh, in digital copy, sorry, uh, on on the UK site and also on our US site. And that's something we've launched this year is we've got looking a bit more outward facing to the United States. And we're now commissioning comment pieces just for that audience, your audience. Yeah, I feel bad. Someone from over there reached out to me and I, I never really followed up about writing for you guys because I have so little band sp- bandwidth. So how'd you get into all this? Who is Francis <laughs> Dernley? So I don't have to explain it to people. Uh, how long is the podcast? Uh, no, I am. Um, <laughs> so uh, my story is I am from rural England. So I'm not an urbanite. I'm a country bumpkin. 
Um, my parents, though, are not from Norfolk, uh, which is where I'm from. My mother is from East London and my father is from Bristol. Um, not that that would necessarily mean too much to international listeners, but it will to UK listeners. And um, uh, Norfolk is Nelson's county, Horatio Nelson. Of course, a lot of people will be interested in Napoleon at the moment. And so I grew up in a world where that's still readily talked about. And indeed, I remember at school covering Horatio Nelson and the Napoleonic Wars in detail when I was growing up, which I think is actually quite unusual in any European context. Um, but for me, it was felt very much living history, which is why I mention it. But uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, I uh, worked hard as a student um, at my local state school, um, ordinary school, not a fee-paying school, and um, was lucky enough to get an offer from to study history at Cambridge, which remains my core passion. I was there in the end for five years. And after that, I was very keen to do some traveling, to actually go and finally see some of the places I'd been studying so much about. And so I traveled around Europe for about three months. What actually proved to be a historic moment in European history, I would argue, it was before the political earthquakes of Brexit before Donald Trump's election and at the height of the refugee crisis at the time. And I was very aware doing this traveling around Western and Central Europe that it really did sort of feel like the, the page of history was about to turn and in what direction it wasn't certain. But this was before those, those uh, elections I just described. And I was traveling, you know, to, to Brussels and speaking to officials there. I was in Germany. And uh, I've done a lot of writing about this since. I'd like to try and put it into a book if I can, but I'm so busy on Ukraine stuff at the moment that it's not possible. But anyway, it was a fascinating trip and it ended actually with a terrorist attack, which I won't go into now because it's a long story, but it sort of was the last... And they never caught you, so... They... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was the sort of... The, it was the the sort of... Um, death of my idyllic, idyllic romanticism, I suppose. And that's mm -hmm. what it's really, in my own psychological development, is what occurred really, is, is seeing places I'd learned so much about and, and also, I suppose, culminating in realizing the reality of, of the very perilous historical period I think we are entering now. But then I returned to England and I wanted to uh, get some work experience in the Houses of Parliament, which is quite a common thing to do if you've uh, fairly fresh out of university. That might seem strange to American listeners, I'm not sure, but it's fairly common here that uh, you might try and do a bit of work experience in such a place. I wrote to my local MP and I asked him whether I could do maybe a couple of weeks in his office and he said yes very generously and before I knew it those two weeks when I started as an intern became three and a half years at the height of the Brexit chaos um, the purgatory of Brexit or so it felt at the time because of course we had the referendum in 2016 June 2016 and the expectation was that it would be over quickly, that it would perhaps last a year or so. But because of the obstinacy of Parliament and all sorts of uh, complexities, it, it, it was in the end, it took a general election, to two general elections indeed, to break the deadlock uh, that eventually saw Brexit passed. But I was in the furnace, actually sometimes passing in and out of number 10 Downing Street when this was all going on. And I never intended to do that. I was more of in a sort of civil servant role, I should say, rather than a political operator. Um, but I never expected to be in that situation. But as a historian, of course, I thought that I was witnessing 
the, the major political event of my lifetime. You know, the, the, the idea of leaving the European Union and, uh, and carving out a new future, heading perhaps more into uh, the American orbit more profoundly, uh, was really tr- felt genuinely transformational. I didn't want to avoid or miss that and be able to write about it, etc. Not realizing, of course, and this is what I've now seen in journalism, which I did after I left Parliament, the pandemic, which in many ways really over shadowed the the significance of of Brexit, at least economically in terms of the political culture here. And fascinatingly, and when the history books of this era are written, January 31st, which was the date we left formally the European Union, was also the first day of registered COVID cases here in Britain. So it really was one era ending and another beginning on the same day. But then the next event that occurred, of course, was war in Europe with Ukraine. And that very quickly became my main focus moving into the Telegraph, which uh, my, because of my background in history, I was asked to start writing pieces on it and also to do this podcast, which was never intended to go on covering the war every day uh, since it right. started. It purely was intended to uh, capture the, the those first days, but we found there was an audience for it. And so I I fell into do it. It's an honor to continue to be covering it today. Okay, so I want to get big picture and I want to move to Ukraine really quick. But just out of curiosity, does, because I don't know if we're going to get back to Brexit. Do you think the average Brit, first of all, the average Brit and also the average educated Brit, do they feel like Brexit was this world historical moment or does it is it just sort of receded into the sort of flattening dead space of recent past because everything seems to move so fast and like what were once huge events now seem kind of like painted on scenery in two-dimensional space i mean like donald trump was impeached twice january 6th happened that for a lot of people just feels like oh that was an interesting week in the news and move on is brexit seen that way or is brexit still seen as like this monumental moment that people live through i think it does very strongly depend on who you ask i think the word i most often hear is betrayal and i say that from both sides of the political spectrum you hear educated people say it was a betrayal of British values. It was a betrayal of the British establishment. It was a betrayal of the Conservative Party because there should never have been a referendum in the first place, etc. And there's that narrative is still very prominent, this idea that in some way it was anti-British to do what happened and that it was somehow a stolen referendum, a stolen election in some regard. But on the other side, you do get, I think, a more common groundswell amongst educated and you know ordinary people in Britain who feel that the promise of Brexit has not been fulfilled. And I think probably the most prominent example of that is around the debate around immigration, which has become particularly acute in recent months here since the not only the small boats that are travelling across the channel from Europe, which seemingly the government is not able to stop, but also, and more fundamentally, there's just astronomically high immigration figures which reach anywhere between 700,000 to a million net a a year, um, which is just simply for many people not seen as sustainable in a country that is not building houses, that is not investing in infrastructure particularly, and is not investing in hospitals and and schools and all those other things which are so essential 
And then you get, of course, into the debates about culture and the people who are coming here and all of these kind of conversations. But I think for many, many people, because of course, just to explain to American listeners who may not be aware, being a member of the European Union enforces free movement. You can't have it really any other way. If you're part of the EU, you're part of Schengen, if you're a major player. And that means that any member of a European Union country can come to your country and settle there. That is the rule. And it worked quite well for a long time. But as we're seeing now, of course, my mass migration is becoming far more common for all sorts of reasons. And it has meant that that has become much more controversial. And Britain has really experienced it, I think, more acutely than many other European countries, because, of course, the universality of English means that many, many people, they only speak two languages in Europe, and one will be their native tongue, and the other will be English. And so English has a, England, Britain has a particular draw, as well as its general global outlook and internationalism. And for many, many people, Brexit was a means of cleaving away ourselves from the European Union and putting a pause or a stop to those kind of numbers. But we have mm -hmm. not seen that. And the reasons we have not seen that is that it has become too economically essential in volatile times for governments to continue that mass migratory policy, as well as it being something that is actually seen unfavorably by the conservative establishment within the party, one could argue, really, that there is, whilst many people are skeptical, uh, certainly amongst the grassroots membership of the Conservative Party, many uh, prime ministers that we've had in recent years have not been skeptical on the matter of migration. Um, but there is, of course, the political element as well. And actually, I think it's important not to put too much emphasis on immigration. I do think it was the most important issue. But there was also a sense which is deeply rooted in the British psyche of not wanting unelected officials in Brussels in Europe to be dictating the future trajectory of the country. And if I could just say one more thing on that, I think it's very important to understand the European project in the context of the Second World War and how it was trying to bring an end to conflict in Europe in an understandable justification, given the horrors that the continent had endured twice in a, such a brief period of time. And of course, many European countries, many European populations were willing to sign up to the idea of a sort of United States of Europe style project because they believed it would build stronger economic union, but also that it would stop dictatorships, that it would stop there being these rise of despotic figures. That is seen as a positive in many European countries. If you go to Italy, if you go to Spain, if you go to France, even to a certain degree, there's this sense of like, well, we don't want to have tyrants. And so, you know, thank goodness for the EU. Whereas in Britain, we've never had that. You know, we've mm. never had uh, the, the, the sort of the threat of dictatorship. And so it means uh, that one Cromwell, can... but anyway. <laughs> uh, well, could, I'm a Norfolk, well, I say I'm an East Anglian man and Cromwell is, a, is an East Anglian. So that's a whole kettle of fish you've opened yeah, there. Yeah. But anyway, but you take the point that it's a mm -hmm. different history. It's a different understanding culturally of the threat posed by uh, despotic figures. And we don't feel we need those protective barriers in place. I think. So there is the political argument, there is the immigration argument, and I think those have played a very prominent role, but they have not been, I think possibly the political one has been solved to an extent, but then the parliament has failed to enact its promises with its newfound sovereignty. And there is huge, enormous anger at the Conservative Party, which is seen through Brexit, 
And as a result of that, they're about to elect somebody who was opposed to Brexit fundamentally in the first place and indeed was going to Brussels to try and negotiate a second referendum. So we are in an extraordinary state of affairs here in Britain. And I don't know how it's all going to end up. But as things certainly stand, I think the Conservative Party is facing a near existential threat. And we're looking at a, quite a strong Labour majority. Okay, so I, I wanted to get to that. That's actually how I wanted to open was like, what the hell is going on with British politics? But we'll get to that in a second. Just one more, uh, indulge my curiosity question. So in the U.S., there is it's obviously similar resistance about immigration, controversies about immigration, and there are, it works on a whole bunch of different frequencies, economic, cultural, racial, um, linguistic, right? And sometimes it's very hard to parse out, to peel apart what the, what the hierarchy of objections are, right? And because I, I sincerely think that for some opponents of, of mass immigration, it has nothing to do with racial stuff. And then for some, it has a lot to do with racial stuff. And, and you shouldn't lump them all together, right? And Exactly. But in the UK, it feels to me like, you know, you don't get, let me put it this way. In the United States, I don't think you'd get the argument about the Polish plumber. You might get the argument about the Mexican plumber but you wouldn't get the argument about the Polish plumber. And I don't want to make it an explicitly racial thing, but there's something about immigrants from Europe that just doesn't ping culturally the same way that immigrants from South America do. And so I'm wondering how much of the racial component is it? Because that was one of the things I was waiting for you to say was that the, the Israel-Hamas conflict is sparking another aspect of the immigration fight because it disproportionately the people who are siding with Hamas tend to be from regions that are majority Muslim or, or North African or Arab and, and that kind of thing. And that's part of the argument that's happening here as well. So I'm just wondering what clarity can you provide about how much of the opposition to immigration in the UK is sort of economic, middle-class people are taking middle-class jobs from Poland and wherever, and how much of it is this sort of, this isn't our civilization, these aren't our people, more of the sort of purely nativist cultural thing. This is the kind of nuanced conversation that Britain has not been able to have about immigration for the best part of 30 years. And it's a tragedy. Yeah, we, 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 seeing... we have a hard time with this too. So, yeah, you know, but, but, it's, it's but unfortunately, difficult. it has been, I would argue, the responsibility of politicians to articulate some of these challenges. And they should be open political conversations. And they have not been. And so as soon as one strays into this territory, you sort of can feel the eggshells in the room, yeah, as it yeah. were. But to answer your question directly, uh, of course, both elements play a role. Uh, and it's interesting you use the term middle class to describe the role of the Polish Prama, because here in Britain, it's actually, I'd say, working class people who felt the consequences of mass immigration most acutely and who are most angry about it. Not only for those kind of jobs, which would have traditionally been something that would have been done by working class communities, but also if you look at the areas that have been most directly impacted, it is in major urban city centres that used to be predominantly English white working class. Uh, so whether it be in Leicester, in Birmingham, in East London, those areas have now become vastly majority of people of other cultures. And as a result of that, it has led to, I think, great frustration economically amongst those, com those communities because they feel that they are you know, the wages have been compressed as a result of people from abroad being willing to do, do it much uh, cheaper, whether it be from Europe or whether it be from Asia or Africa. 
Um, but then you also do get this sort of more civilizational debate. And that has become, I think, particularly acute in recent years. And in a sense, Brexit plays into that too, because, of course, we are seeing a shift in the people who are coming here now. Um, the irony is that many people wanted a lower number of migrants from as a result of Brexit and Brexit being the key to that, but it has risen and it has risen from places that many Brits would actually feel more uncomfortable about. Countries that say uh, don't share British values on gay rights or women's emancipation. Uh, whereas obviously in Europe, broadly speaking, and I know there are nuances in there, broadly speaking, they do. And so that is leading to unease. And I think you're absolutely right, Jonah, that the scenes we've seen as a consequence of the terrible events unfolding in uh, Israel and Gaza and following the terrorist acts of Hamas have drawn a close eye to what is occurring. And I've been very, very struck by the degree to which that is actually cross-class. So uh, working class people can be furious. I'm, I'm, I should say, I'm really generalizing here, Jonah, okay? Sure. Like working okay, class, yeah. I'm using this in a very loose sense, um, are very angry about, you know, this idea of there being marches through London that may desecrate the cenotaph, our secular religious memorial to the war dead. That really upsets people in the working class for very, very obvious reasons, and rightfully so, I should say. But you also get very educated middle-class people who do enter the debate in this more civilizational sense now, in a way that I've not seen perhaps to the same degree before. And I think we are entering a, a bigger conversation now that is of that nature. But as I say, it is all due to a failing of being able to have a common sense conversation about this with all of these kind of conversations rooted into it for a very, very long time. It literally was in this country only a question of numbers and nothing about class, nothing about race, nothing about culture. It was all about that one issue. And so many, many people felt that they were being forcibly silenced by political correctness. And that is leading to great, great anger at the political establishment that has been articulated by Brexit, by voting for, in some ways, vaguely populistic. And I, hes I hesitate to use that term because I think there's huge differences between Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. But, you know, mm -hmm. Boris Johnson is an anti-establishment figure in a lot of ways, right. in only the way that an Etonian can be. Um, but right. anyway. But Boris um, Johnson read books, so that's a big right. difference right well, there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> indeed. Um, but, you know, he is a bit of a, he, he's loved by people, or was anyway, uh, by mm -hmm. people despite their their sort of socioeconomic background. And so you had an anti-establishment election in 2016. You had the election of Boris Johnson in the end that was also sort of trying to say, look, we are not happy with the way that things are. And yet there has been a fundamental failing of grappling that on whether it be on immigration or on other matters. And people understandably are angry. And I think now we are going to see, despite the fact that there is just going to be an inevitable pivot to the left uh, and the Labour Party here in really not for love of what Labour are doing, but just purely in opposition to uh, the Conservatives. But the bigger debate is going to be when Labour fail, which I think they will, because it's not going to be in their impulse to reduce immigration by any stretch, and they're probably not going to have the economic feasibility or flexibility to do so. There is going to be a backlash against them, and there's going to be a backlash on the right as well. And it is, I think, existential for both political parties, potentially. And if you look at Europe at the moment, if you look what's happening in the Netherlands, in Italy, in Spain, 
there is a wave of populism that is there. And I'm not surprised at all because I say when I was traveling uh, a handful of years ago, you could see the seeds were there. You know, this has been brewing for a very, very long time. And those of us who are up close to it, like you are, Jonah, and talk about this, you know, it feels like it's been a long, long time. But actually in the grand sweep of history, this is still a fairly short period of time. And I'm absolutely convinced that on the current trajectory, politically, things are going to explode. And I think that that is a failing of the political establishment in Europe, in Britain, and indeed on the to our American cousins as well, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just worth pointing out that like political parties, people have been talking about the predicting the demise of one or both of these party, American political parties for a very long time. And the problem is, is that the difference in our systems is such that it's very difficult to actually kill one of these parties. And the only way you can do it is for a third party to emerge, kill that party, and then in effect becomes the second party because we're, we're going to have a two-party system here. Parliamentary systems, parties can die really easily. You know, in one election, a party can vanish. Um, certainly in three elections, three bad elections, and they're just gone. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So we should back up because I've been a terrible traffic cop here. You had an election. Yeah, you, you 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 have um, you had 
Liz Truss, who lasted about the shelf life of a cabbage. Uh, you had Boris Johnson. The cabbage won, actually. The cabbage won. I know, won. the cabbage won. I thought, well, you know, plus or minus, you know, if yeah. you'd gotten a, you know, a slightly riper cabbage to start with, it, you know, maybe she would have won, you know, so like be generous a little bit. Um, and now you have this guy, Rishi Sunak, who m- my take, my read on him, and it's not a very good one, is that he's essentially uh, a technocrat who doesn't know how to be an authentic politician and he's trying to figure that out. But the weird thing that very difficult for Americans to comprehend is that he appointed a former prime minister as his foreign secretary, which would be our secretary of state, but he had to make him a lord to do it, which is just weird from our perspective. And um, sorry for the language. And um, so just sort of big picture, you meet an American who is not following American politics. What does the conservative party look like right now? Is it running on fumes? When is the next election? Just sort of the elevator pitch to sort of explain to people why we were dwelling on all this stuff to begin with. Next election will probably happen in 2024. In theory, it could last into early 2025, given the way that parliament tenures are, but I think it's more likely to be in 2024 as things stand, or at least that's the noises coming from the government. Although if I were them, I'd probably be tempted to hold on for as long as possible and hope for a miracle. In short, the Conservative Party is not in good health. I think it is running on fumes, as you say, at the end of you know, a long tenure in government, over 13 years now that they have been operating. And I think there was an opportunity, you know, you had the biggest majority uh, since Tony Blair in 2019. So only within this election cycle, there was an enormous chance for a rejuvenation of the party. And it did seem like there was going to be that under the premiership of Boris Johnson. Uh, But unfortunately, That imploded in part due to the pandemic and in part due to his own foibles, I would say. And really, there has not been a figure the Conservative Party has had really since Margaret Thatcher, who has what I would call the three keys to success, which is charisma, competency, and cut through. Tony Blair had all three, Margaret Thatcher had all three, but we've had prime ministers who've had usually lacked one or two of those things. So I would say to to give your summary of Rishi Sunak, I think he's competent, but he lacks cut through and charisma. I would say- Cut through being a Britishism for what? Being able to to communicate in a way that people listen and people pay Mm -hmm. attention to what you are saying. I mean, Boris Johnson had that because he's an entertainer. He's theatrical. People listen because you don't know what he's going to say. He has weird quotations coming out of his mouth, quoting ancient scholars, for instance, so very commonly. Uh, So, but as you say, Rishi Sunak just sounds like a a technocrat fundamentally. And uh, that means that, that it just doesn't appeal to large swathes of the British public, but he is competent. I think it's you know, to be to be fair to him, um, Liz Truss, I would say, probably lacked all three, which is why she was doomed from the get go. To be honest, and she was elected really, I think, as a middle fingers up by the party membership, who were so angry about the implosion of Boris and uh, and not particularly fans of Rishi. Sunak. Uh, then you've got David Cameron, who I'd say was probably charismatic and competent, but didn't get masses of cut through with the public, really. I mean, it's 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 all to a degrees to a certain extent. But I think that there has not been somebody who has managed to control the political arena 
since Tony Blair in this country. And the tragedy of Boris Johnson is that he had the charisma, he had the uh, the cut through. But if he'd had that competence, he could have been a truly great prime minister that could have probably governed for the next 10 years. But as a, as alludes to his implosion, we're now in the situation where, as I said, the Conservative Party is really running on fumes. Many, many Conservative MPs know that they are going to lose big in the next election. They're deciding to step down rather than have to contest that election. So really, you're in the dying days, I think, of a government at present. And it's in all likelihood will be a strong Labour majority, as I say, that will take over who are left-wing, but they are not as radically left-wing as somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, who of course was the previous Labour leader. Keir Starmer is more is seen, perceived as which, I actually think he's more left-wing than people think, but he's perceived as being more Blairite, more moderate, more sensible uh, on matters of the economy, on particularly on foreign affairs. Uh, I think this is the biggest difference between our respective countries is that here in the UK, as I've talked about on the podcast many times, there is uh, regardless of your political persuasion, a very strong support for Ukraine. Uh, and that being the most important foreign policy issue of the moment, uh, at least as perceived, I think, in the UK. And uh, so even if Keir Starmer wins, that he has said is not going to fundamentally change Britain's position on supporting Zelensky and the Ukrainian people, that it will continue in the same vein and may even increase they've said. Whereas, of course, in the United States, you actually are seeing that the outcome of that election, which is far more, I'm willing to more than concede, is far more significant to Ukraine's future than the British election, is genuinely divided on the support of Ukraine, or so it seems. And that is, of course, extremely worrying from the Ukraine's perspective. But no, it's a, it's a very volatile situation, uh, Jonah. And of course, when you're in a, when you uh, any party goes through so many prime ministers in one term, I think it's almost fated that they're going to lose the next election. But, you know, shocks can happen. A week is a long time in politics. If the world does suddenly become a much more dangerous place, which I don't believe is impossible, then we might see a very different political time era in the next year or so. Last question on politics. Labor's more left-wing. That's fine. Labor's the left of, cent- le- left of center party. Conservatives are right of center party. That's how it works. Like, if you ask me, what does it mean to have the left of center party in power in the United States? I could give you two dozen policy issues that would be different than what Republicans do. What are the top three things? So you said foreign policy is kind of a bipartisan thing there. Domestically, what are the three things that the conservatives absolutely won't do that labor will do that define what makes them the left of center party? Because it's, it's, uh, if someone asked me that question, I'm, I, I could guess something about taxes, something about welfare payments of some kind. I mean, but like, I, I honestly don't know. So like what 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 defines the left left wing party there? Certainly. Well, I mean, <laughs> you've just hit the nail on the head, Jenna, with the problem with the politics in this country at the moment is it's actually extremely difficult for many voters, including educated voters, to distinguish the difference between quite a soft right conservative party and a broadly moderate right left Labour Party. Uh, you know, there are not huge differences or there have not been huge differences for some time. And actually, it's been a deliberate political strategy of the Labour Party not to articulate its policies because it doesn't need to. Uh, the, the Conservatives are doing, you know, are perceived as doing 
uh, an ineffectual job. And so Labour can just sit tight. What's the Napoleon quote? Um, Never interrupt your enemy whilst he's making a mistake. So they have not needed to articulate their policies. Of course, there are differences. And we are starting to see the gulf open up a little bit as the Conservatives are suddenly realising they face this existential danger. And so I think tax is a big one. I think we are going to see they've already began the process of lowering taxes. And I think that will that will increase quite significantly in the next year, uh, the next budget. I think we will see the Conservatives lowering taxes quite substantially in a way that Labour would not want to do. For them, they want to boost taxes, particularly for the wealthy, and invest a lot of it in public spending, particularly the National Health Service, which is now taking up almost 40% of UK GDP. It's extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you hear people on the right say, you know, we're a, a national health service with a country attached, you know, and there is actually some economic truth to that. I mean, the scale of the challenge is enormous. Um, so tax is a big one. The Conservative government have now come out just literally this week, this is sort of breaking, that they want to put a much higher cap on the amount of money one has to earn in order to be able to be eligible to move to the UK if you're from abroad, that may well have a drastic impact of cutting numbers. But they're already going to be dealing with figures because of the way things work that next year they'll be using figures from this year. So the numbers will still be astronomically high. So it's not going to, I don't think, change any of the electoral outcome. But immigration is a big one. Tax is a big one. And I think also on some of these culture wars matters, which of course matter enormously too, then of course you have to say that Labour are the uh, the more woke party, the party that, that is pushing that agenda much more strongly, uh, not critical of Black Lives Matter, are much more sceptical on uh, support for Israel as a party. I mean, Keir Starmer is trying to hold the things together at the moment in perhaps the same way that Joe Biden is to a degree. Uh, and But yet there are many, many MPs in his party who are unhappy with uh, him not calling for a ceasefire. And as a consequence of that, are uh, I think when they do, if they do win power, there will be some quite big cultural culture wars fronts that are relevant, not only in that foreign pairs context, but actually, of course, on matters around transgender stuff, which is also very strong here, and uh, also all of those other debates, which will be you know, very, very familiar with, with your uh, listeners. But I do think, as I say, that the inability of either party to really clearly distinguish itself and clearly solve some of these problems and actually engage with them in an intellectual way that has foundation is leading to a point where if things were to change, I don't know how they could change. I can see certain scenarios. But if there were an opportunity, to your point, that people could vote for another party that was massively popular, and there are wings that could happen as the Reform Party in the UK, which if Nigel Farage were to take it back over, uh, he <laughs> could be an existential threat to the Conservatives in a lot of seats. Um, and, you know, and as you say, in one election cycle or two, you can very quickly threaten and take over that space in a way that's impossible in the United States. I don't think that's that's inconceivable. And I always think, and you mentioned how difficult that is in the United States. I always think if you couldn't, you know, if, if, if even Theodore Roosevelt running for a, from the Bull Moose Party couldn't break the deadlock, your most popular president ever on leaving office, then really it just shows how completely impossible it is in the United States to break that deadlock. Because I can't really conceive of any president being as popular as he was uh, after leaving the turn office and still losing. I mean, he won, he obviously beat the Republican Party, but uh, it, it split split the vote and of course led to... Uh, right. that's, the, well, the, that's the famous line, uh, Richard Hofstetter, political historian, you know, says third parties have their effect. They're like bees. They have their effect by stinging and then they die, right? And that's what the Bull Moose yes. Party did to the Republicans and got 
yes. the worst president of the 20th century elected. And um, which is a perfect place for a segue here. You said, and I warned you I was going to do this to you. You said on the podcast recently, on the occasion of Henry Kissinger's death, that no academic has ended up having a bigger impact on world affairs or uh, in politics than Kissinger, or words to that effect. And as the chairman of the International Committee for, of Woodrow Wilson haters, I have to push back <laughs> on that and tell you that Woodrow Wilson was an academic. He became president of the United States, and he uh, wrought havoc at home and abroad in all sorts of myriad ways. And I think historically was of greater influence than Henry Kissinger. I'm just going to put it out there. I, I'm more than willing to concede that uh, that point, Jonah. I think I can't exactly remember the, the, the choice of words I used. I'm not sure if yeah. I said it was that he was the most, but I certainly I'm willing to concede that he was enormously important. Maybe you just said and you I couldn't think, think of one or something like right. that. And that's, yeah, a, that's, yeah. a, that's, I, a, that's a hedge uh, that I can allow. And but you're, I, I, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right about uh, Wilson's legacy, which I think is uh, misunderstood here in Britain because we just don't really learn that much about the American side of First World War. But of course, the disaster of the League of Nations uh, and uh, Versailles is, I think, largely laid at his doorsteps. Although actually my own view on Versailles is that it wasn't so much Versailles was wrong philosophically, this whole moral argument that you made it predestined that Germany would rise and that, it, that, that Nazism became inevitable because of this sort of betrayal narrative was able to be fostered. I think that the failure of Versailles and the failure of American foreign policy and indeed Western foreign policy, not including uh, Germany, was to act out the principles of Versailles, which is when Hitler was openly breaking them, um, particularly in the mid-1930s, to do nothing. Uh, and I think that it could have easily been uh, that the war could have been prevented, at least on anywhere near the, the scale that it was, if there had been the willingness to act. But of course, America had gone down the isolationist path broadly, and there was no willingness after the horrors of the First World War for Britain and France and other nations to act in Germany. But I don't think, actually, that Versailles made anything inevitable, but certainly appeasement did. Yeah, so this is, so you're, you're really helping me here with my segues now, because first of all, I would say that I blame Napoleon far more for the rise of Nazism than I do Versailles because it was Napoleon who leads to the unification of Germany, which was like literally the one thing France should never want to do. <laughs> and, <laughs> sure. um, um, yeah. But also uh, this standing by while knowing the right thing and not doing it vis-a-vis uh, -vis the 1930s is a perfect way to finally get to one of the reasons why you're here, which is to talk about Ukraine. Which I'm not saying that we're not doing nothing, but we're not doing enough. I, because I, 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 I hear you dilate on on Ukraine quite often. I, I know you're in broad agreement with that statement. But where do you see the war right now, and what do you see it? Where do you see it going? It's a big question. So I was talking about this on the podcast yesterday. We had a very pessimistic uh, expert on who was laying out the military realities at the present moment, and. I asked him at the end, and this is, I suppose, my critique of where we stand at, at present, so it's not particularly directed at him. I asked him, to what degree is his analysis baked in on certain assumptions, such as Western support is only going to decline, that certain outcomes, perhaps in the United States presidential election, are going to occur or fated to occur, that weapons support for Ukraine from a European context is not going to increase, that ammunition may not change. What I mean when I say that is there seems to be a remarkable lack of agency 
amongst Western leaders at the moment. There is this strange sense that, oh, well, the power of Russia being what it is, the, the resources that it can tap on and call upon are such that really it's only going to be a downward spiral for the Ukrainians. And thus, as a result, you know, it's, it's important we give them enough to continue fighting, but we really want there to be some kind of negotiated settlement. So we don't need to give them any more because it would actually be impossible for there to be a victory as articulated by the Ukrainians and the Western leaders themselves early in the war. But uh, so in saying all that, you know, that is not true. There is still immense opportunity if the West sought to embrace it. And I think that's really important, particularly for American listeners to this podcast, because of course you do have the most high-tech weaponry that you could gift the Ukrainians, which would play a decisive role, such as the uh, more like the attackums and the way that the attackums did. I'm not saying, by the way, that there aren't European countries that can do that. Of course, the Germans can too with Taurus. And it's not all on your doorstep. But the United States has a, a, a an economic power, a military power that could change this war overnight. And so all of these arguments that are basically assuming and making big assumptions, not only, I would argue, about the direction of travel necessarily in the war in terms of support, because I think that support has, to some extent, not dropped off, but there is a sort of a sense of eyes are elsewhere in Israel and Gaza. But I don't think that's the same as war fatigue. I think people are actually ready to re-engage when something happens. So I think it's very misconceived to think that people have lost interest in Ukraine matters. But I think it's even deeper than that because people are actually, you mentioned Napoleon earlier, and I'm going to mention Hegel now, who of course saw Napoleon as fate on horseback. There's this sort of weird sense that, that there's a historical inevitability about how this war is going to end, which totally misunderstands the nature of history. I mean, if you were going by that logic, Ukraine would have been taken over in three days. I mean, I remember these same experts and same world leaders telling Zelensky to leave because he didn't stand a chance. But it seems this real pessimism has has infected the Western cultural political military establishment that thinks that somehow there is only one fated outcome when it's entirely in our hands. Look at the way that Prigozhin's mutiny happened as a result of the support given to the Ukrainians, which proved decisive in Bakhmut, which provoked the Wagner group, angered the Wagner group, and then they launched a mutiny against Putin. I, I firmly believe there is far or more instability in Russia than people register. And I hear that from sources there and experts who I trust on this subject. Putin could have a heart attack tomorrow. You know, I'm not saying that's likely. I think he's probably healthier than people think. But, you know, history doesn't work in this linear sort of Marxist determinist fashion. And yet you see it's become really common, common uh, sort of common assumption. So I challenge that very, very strongly. I think if the Ukrainians were given the Western support in terms of military ammunition, in terms of advanced weaponry, in terms of the political support, and that's actually the biggest one, right? If it was made very, very clear to Russia from the American perspective and from the Western perspective that you cannot win in Ukraine. Yes, militarily, you can drag things down, but we are going to support them for as long as this takes. Then there would be very, very different miscalculations uh, being made in the Kremlin. I'm convinced of that. Um, but the fact is he knows that if he clings on, he holds on, he believes that that strengthens his hand. And that is the tragedy of what is going on in the Republican Party at the moment, I would argue. Because if you didn't have articulators of Ukraine skepticism, if you had a more of a Reaganite view 
on the importance of what is at stake in Ukraine, then they would probably think, well, it doesn't really matter what happens in the US. It doesn't really matter too much what happens in Europe. Ukraine have essentially secured their freedom and really probably the most sensible thing to do would be to pull out. And indeed, if things got worse for Putin and the domestic pressure was such, I believe he would de-escalate this war. Because if you look at Russian history, what you see continuously is that when there is domestic pressure at home, the impetus amongst leaderships is to focus on suppression, focus on things in the domestic sphere. Because Russia is such a big country, you cannot risk external volatility and the armed forces. You have to basically secure victory at home. Look at what the Bolsheviks did. Their priority was to end the war at Brest-Litovsk at any price. And there are numerous examples of that. And I firmly believe that if there was more domestic pressure, which we could also be sowing, by the way, which we're not doing enough, sowing more domestic pressure, more economic pressure through sanctions, uh, then there's no reason to think that I, that that there wouldn't be an, uh, sort of more threats domestically for Putin and he might well withdraw, seeking to justify it in a way that Napoleon justified the invasion of Russia, which was to say, uh, yes, it didn't go exactly how I planned, but it made my enemies think twice. And I think that he would use that as a, as a means of justifying even a failed attempt on Ukraine. He would say, well, they'll never do that again. You know, uh, and that's how he would sell it to his people. So I, you know, I think it's important to to be much more optimistic and remember that there's nothing, nothing is written, nothing is predestined here. There is still much that could happen, and it is in our hands. Yeah. So th- this gets at one of my great and abiding peeves. I mean, the, I think the two great, or I shouldn't say the two, two of the great conceptual errors in foreign policy, if we're doing Hegel, they're dialectical to each other. One is anthropomorphization of nation states, and the other one is dehumanization of nation states, when in reality, the synthesis is somewhere in the middle. And so like we saw at the beginning with the invasion of Ukraine, a lot of arguments, including from some friends of mine about how Look, this is this is Aesopian, right? This is like the scorpion has to sting the frog. Russia has to invade Ukraine. It's like, no, it doesn't. I mean, like one of the things that has been more ratified than anything else is the great man theory of, of history in, in, the, in this war because you take 20 different Russian leaders who had Putin's job, you know, if you could play the, the simulations over and over again, maybe 10 of them would opt to invade Ukraine, but six of those would do a better job at it and plan better. And, you know, and the other 10 wouldn't do it at all. Um, the idea that somehow Putin did not have agency in choosing to do this and choosing to do it in the way that he did is ludicrous. And similarly, you get this, it's much more on the sort of neo-Marxian, identitarian, crazy left where you have people who say, what you don't understand, Hamas is a resistance organization. As if like that's somehow, you know, like, oh, I read some Franz Fanon. And so therefore you're allowed to rape people and cut off heads of babies. You know, like it doesn't work. Like like individual human beings chose to do these atrocities and they chose not to do conventional military attacks. And so this constant pendulum swing between saying the bad guys have no agency, they're just doing what the scorpion must do. And therefore it's folly for us to stand in its way. It saturates everything. I mean, it's, it's because it, then if you believe that, then it deprives us of agency. It says. Exactly. Exactly. They had no choice to do it. So why are we even getting away? It's like, it's, it's like King Canute arguing that the sea should recede or whatever. It's, it's, it's an excuse not to 
do the hard things. And I don't know how you get around it at this point um, other than, I mean, I think it's really one of the things that's really great about the Ukraine podcast is one of the only ways you move hearts is by telling stories, you know, and telling stories humanizes people and it makes it, oh, this one hero won this battle. And that shows that this battle wasn't inevitable one way or the other. Uh, but beyond that, I am very disappointed. Biden's on the right side of the argument, but he's doing it the wrong way. And I don't know how in this climate at this point, that changes. I do think Ukraine gets more aid, but maybe one more round of it for a while and then nothing until after the presidential election. I think you're right. And I think that there would have to be some quite significant event to change that outcome. Uh, what it, that could be, I'm not quite sure. It may be actually in the Ukraine context. I mean, I don't think this is particularly likely, but if one can imagine suddenly that Russia made some sort of huge military breakthrough, I think there would suddenly be a sense of we can't allow this to happen. And that's the other problem, the other baked-in assumption, I should say, is that you've got this weird sense, I think a lot of people think the war's already won, that it's over, that essentially Ukraine has secured enough of its territory, it knows it's no longer to be uh, taken over, and thus we can give Ukraine enough to hold on, and eventually it will be negotiated. Putin has never publicly s said that you know he only wants to keep the territory he currently controls, which, by the way, is far too much, and I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. Um, he is still absolutely maximalist on this. He's still saying that Zelensky is a neo-Nazi. He's still saying that this is a war against NATO. And people read into this that he's always oh, posturing because he wants a, you know, a peace deal as soon as possible. But the fact is that if that's true, and you were to see a withdrawal of support for Ukraine, then you would be, we would may well see. Russian progress on the battlefield. And that, I think, would be unconscionable to many people. So you're in this dire situation if, if you're the Ukrainians at the moment, because they're basically being told you need to do more if you want to end the war how you can. But we're not going to give you the tools to do that. But also, by the way, mm -hmm. we don't think you're going to lose. And the Ukrainians, of course, are saying, well, <laughs> you know, this is, this is just unfair, you know, and, and, yeah. and rightly so, given the importance that was given to supporting the Ukrainians early on in the war. You know, President Biden going to Kyiv and saying, Kyiv stands strong. You had leaders going there and saying, this is the most important battle of our times. You had Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, saying this is a Zeitenwender, you know, a world shift. <laughs> you know, wh what's happened to all of that? You know, it's it's quite extraordinary, the the, the weakness on, on this issue. Particularly, Jonah, if I may just say, you talk about the human stories we try and share on the podcast, and inevitably we have to focus on the military sphere and the political sphere predominantly, which tends to abstraction because it has to, right? But we do try and draw attention to human stories. And we had somebody on the podcast last week that it just, it really stuck with me. And we hear things like this all the time. So it was from a journalist who'd just come back from some of the territory that had been liberated by the Ukrainians from the Russians. And she told us about an elderly lady that she interviewed there. She was 80 years old. And when the Russians took over, it had been too dangerous really to leave the house. And her husband, elderly husband as well, had had a heart attack and died. She said of a broken heart because of the invasion. 80-year-old woman had to bury her husband in the frozen ground outside herself and 
the body is still there because it's not been able to be dug up and, and buried properly. She's living alone in this house, trying to survive, in essence. And she told this journalist that she was born in the Second World War and that her greatest fear was that she would die in another conflict. And I hear that, and as a historian, I think this is absolutely shameful, given the promises that were made to Ukraine, but also the failure to learn from history. And when people have been saying, never again, we must never allow this, that, and the other to take place on European soil, we've seen war crimes day in, day out. They're happening right now, this very moment. And I'm not just talking about soldiers being executed by the Russians. I'm talking about children being kidnapped in their dozens, maybe even hundreds every week. Over 19,000 by some estimates, maybe even more children have been kidnapped from their parents and taken to Russia. And yet there is a complete inability, it seems to me, for people to countenance this. And I think one factor that is in play is the degree to which it's inconceivable to so many people of my generation that this is actually happening. You know, the elderly mm -hmm. people can believe it because they live through this horror at once, mm -hmm. or at least they have parents who did. But I'm a child of Fukuyama. And I don't mean that mm -hmm. because I think actually Fukuyama gets a, an unfair rap if you read the book. So do I. As I'm sure. Yeah, but anyway, let's just say how Fukuyama is understood. Mm -hmm. You know, I was told growing up, going to school, that in a sense, wars were basically over, that technology was going to globalize the world and that everything would be dandy and that history had ended. That was a genuine and sincere belief held by people in that very brief hiatus at the end of the Cold War before and to some extent immediately after 9-11. And so for many people, it is actually almost inconceivable this is occurring. And I use the evidence, and I, I hesitate to use the example of the Holocaust because I think it was a particular kind of evil. But there's the documentary, The Karski Report, by Claude Landsman, who did Shoah. And he interviews Jan Karski, who was the representative of the Polish government in exile in 41-43, I think it was. And it was his responsibility to go to President Roosevelt and many other European leaders to explain to them what was happening in the Holocaust. And of course, at those points, Things were known, but nowhere near the degree to what we now know. But even so, it was known about. And he describes very eloquently in that documentary and has written about it afterwards as well, that it's sort of, there are only certain things that people can actually conceptualize as part of their moral universe. And if they're not able to inhabit that, if they don't have the learning, if they don't have the understanding of it, that it doesn't matter how many facts you throw at them. It's almost inconceivable. And I didn't really believe that was possible. And yet I, the one of the only ways I can explain it is that that is actually what is happening to large numbers of people, that it is so impossible for them to conceive that this is occurring, that they don't engage with it. I think if you're being more generous, you could say too that people feel that once, if they do learn about it, that they then have a moral responsibility and they're afraid with all of the other anxiety and stresses of the moment. But I think there is something more deeper psychologically in play, which actually explains this on a very pan-cultural sense, because it just... The things I've seen, Jonah, and reported on the podcast are so appalling that uh, really, I think if more people knew about them and engaged with them in a way that has that sort of historical understanding that things are conceivable, then I don't think we would see this inactivity and this hand-wringing that we've, we've seen today. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This gets under uh, something I struggle with. Because on the one hand, I think a lot of the problems we have today are functions of the education system, peddling certain narratives, the oppressor, settler, colonial narrative, that kind of stuff, identity politics, all turbocharged by social media and the way, you know, as I put it in my last book, you know, we follow things increasingly as a form of entertainment. And once you make the leap to decide, this is the good guy and this is the bad guy. You'll forgive the good guy the most terrible things and you'll uh, damn the bad guy for the most excusable things, right? And so you have these people who are following, who have, who decided, at least in the United States, who are Trumpy, they've decided since, because of negative polarization, the my enemies don't like Putin and because they don't like Trump and they don't like Trump and Putin. So therefore, I like Putin. Um, and so the, the standards that they'll use to condemn Zelensky are so damning of Putin. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, Zelensky's not a real Democrat. He's outlawed as opposed. And it was like, really, that's, that's what offends you about Zelensky and your defense of Putin. And, um, and you can go through this the same thing with the Hamas stuff is like, well, look what Israel is doing about, you know women or whatever. And he's like, really, that's your defense of Hamas is, 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 and, and I think this addiction to narrative stuff, which I think is turbocharged by all of these other technological and educational factors explains a lot. And then you go back and you look at the way people argued about Hitler and you're like, well, maybe not because it was a different educational system and it was definitely, there wasn't a lot of social media <laughs> and it is this human thing. And it's very difficult to sort of, for me to calibrate the sociology of this in an explanatory way. It's funny you should say that, Jenna, because I've been having this conversation with colleagues this week. So we did our Christmas charity appeal on Sunday and it, one of the charities we were supporting at the Telegraph is the RAF Benevolent Fund supporting veterans who flew in the Royal Air Force. And as part of that, it was a real honor and a surprise that we had a 102-year-old veteran of the war mm -hmm. come in, still walking around, didn't look a day past 85, talking to everybody. <laughs> and uh, I had the, the privilege of speaking to him for about 20 minutes. And he's still extremely articulate, well-informed, and follows the news very closely. And so I was asking someone with a century's worth of foreign policy yeah. knowledge for his memories and also his reflections on the present context. And we spoke about the 1930s and he was saying, you know, he remembers very clearly just the sense of 
malaise. And a large part of it, he, I think, was sort of suggesting was the horrors of the First World War were just so profound on the generation that they were so reluctant to do anything when it was obvious, really, that something had to be done. So it wasn't actually that people were trying to justify Hitler in the way that perhaps they might with certain leaders today or have a weak spot for them. Rather, they knew he was a baddie, certainly in Britain. But there was just such a sense of, well, he's so bad or he's so, you know, idiotic that he's not really a threat. Um, you know, this whole idea that he could be controlled, et cetera, or outplayed geopolitically. So it was that. But then, of course, as he said, and he was in the very, very strong on this, you know, he was extremely concerned about the Ukraine and the withdrawal of American support. He was saying, you know, one of the lessons of my life is appeasement doesn't work. You know, uh, straight from the horse's mouth. I didn't put those in his valley, he just said that, you know. And, and so he was very, very robust on this. And this is a man who flew 50 bombing missions over Germany during the war. You know, this is, this is, this is a serious, this isn't a man who flew one mission. You know, this is someone who has lived it, done it, and has seen the horrors and where appeasement can get you. And so it was fascinating to hear that. So I think in that context, I think you have to understand it in the First World War example. But in our present context, I've become increasingly sensitive to the idea that the medium is the message. And in a sense, it doesn't really matter how nuanced one tries to argue on X or Twitter, I don't know what we have to call it now, that the medium in the sense is what matters. And the medium basically encourages us into those tribes. It encourages us to like things that are strong as opposed to nuanced and reflective. And it has infested our politic and our culture, of course, TikTok too, this sort of idea of making a whole generation addicted to short-termism, literally in a biological sense, it is extremely toxic. And so I suppose, you know, I've been thinking about this in a sort of philosophical sense that to what degree does my being on Twitter say just enable issues, you know, and I should say, mm -hmm. it, for me, it's absolutely essential to be on there as a journalist. I learn a lot from experts. And if you use it right, it is an asset. I'm not... It's just getting harder to use it right. But, but it's I getting agree. harder. It's getting harder to use it. But also, I still worry the degree to which actually the social mediafication of our societies is, even if you have good eggs in there, that the medium is what matters. And that is actually eroding that. And until we embrace the fact, if we can, and it's not too late, that this has been a toxifying force on our politics in a way that, in how it is forcing us to conduct ourselves a certain way, or that the next generation are being raised to think, then I'm not sure we can be too optimistic about change. And that's also true as well, of course, because of the way in which Russia and our enemies, China, use social media as a tool against us. And that's not conspiratorial, that is a fact. So, you know, until... Basically, I think parents and also politicians are willing to say, you know, do not have children on TikTok before the age of 18 or social media at all for that matter and encouraging there to be longer means of engaging on these subjects or at least teaching people the dangers of them. I think we're in, we're in a very dangerous spot as a Western civilization. And I don't say that with, with you know, trying to be pretentious about it. It's genuinely something I've spent a lot of time mulling over. And I think it should be a, seen as a very, very great danger indeed, because it is a radicalizing force on all of us. Yeah, no, look, I, look, I, mean, I wrote a book called Suicide of the West. I, I, mean, I, I agree. And I'm very pro-democracy. I'm more pro-liberalism than I am pro-democracy, but, but democracy is essential to protect 
to perpetuate liberalism. So you got to have both. But the way I think about it is institutions, broadly speaking, have essentially an edit function, right? Exactly. Uh, and they with an editor a newspaper, you get copy from someone and they're too hot-headed. The editor says, tone it down, get your facts right, try again. That sort of circuit breaker effect is done by almost all institutions. Scientific institutions, someone comes in with a bad study that is very popular and touches on a hot button issue and says, look, this isn't ready for publication. Try again. The rise of mass media has had this corrosive effect on all sorts of institutions that are not sufficiently responsive in a populist age for populist passions. And so as a result, um, the impulse to slow things down and be considered um, uh, just gets overtaken by the loudest voices. And I think that that's sort of the that's a huge problem for liberal democracies, which have to be responsive to people in ways that illiberal autocracies don't have to. But we've gotten really flabby in our vocabulary about how to tell the, ma ma I don't like the term masses, but tell the people they're wrong, right? And, and they're, and, and so I think that like, and then you have this other problem where at the other end of the spectrum, there are an enormous number of intellectuals who, the, sort of what the, the French guy who says, you know, there go the people, I must go with them for I am their leader, um, who um, reify popular passion as an intellectual project. And I don't know how you unwind that either, you know, and so it's going to be, a lot of muddling through, very British concept for a while um, as you try to figure this stuff out. And I just worry that we're going to have to wait for Poland to have problems for us to learn the lessons that we should have, you know, applied to Ukraine. I think that's absolutely fair. And you've put it far more eloquently than I could on this question. I mean, I should say I'm not anti-democratic either. You know, I don't want to come across as somebody who's saying, well, we need to shut down Twitter. We need to be suppressing these kind of voices. It's about doing it in a way that is actually ground up in a sense. It's educating people to think for themselves about how they engage with this content. But that really has, the approach unfortunately has been too much of, of top-down censorship, which only actually exacerbates the problem, one could argue. Now, I think the, the only space where there should really be censorship is when you're dealing with content that is being purely produced to deceive, disinformation. Mm -hmm in essence. And of course, that is happening, as I say, a lot on and social a couple media. other extreme cases, like pedophilia, you know, we can Oh, of course, sorry, yes, of, sorry, of yeah. course, and criminal, criminal activity. But right. I'm talking about, you know, it's actually quite difficult to define disinformation as criminal activity, but I think actually what right. we should, or at least be more sensitive to that. But it's, it's, it should be, you know, an enormous subject of concern and really a much more proactive debate. And I should say, interestingly, I think it is amongst parents. I'm not a parent myself, but... This is one of those conversations that I think happens around the dinner table on an almost daily basis in many homes, you know, addiction to children's addiction to social media, to Instagram and the impact of that on mental health and on people's politics. You know, these terrible situations one sees where people have effectively been radicalized by 
TikTok. I mean, who would have thought having China controlling the minds of our next generation would have issues, right? Uh, you know, who have been radicalized to be pro-Hamas or at least think they are, you know, that, that Hamas are somehow heroic in their activities. Um, this is a common refrain. This is a common subject of conversation I hear from many people when I speak to many politicians in the UK that they're having these dialogues with their own children or commentators or thinkers or whatever. And yet somehow, Parliament doesn't see it as its role here to act on this or to engage with this much more strongly, or at the very least articulating the anxieties, you know, and uh, it should be about personal responsibility. And it's these sort of things that actually matter to many, many people. But for whatever reason, there's a real failure to discuss it and engage with it in a sophisticated manner, much like the dialogue on immigration, to go back to where we began. Yeah, yeah. There's also, just to throw it in there, I think one of the things that causes a lot of people to stand on the sidelines in these things is it's sort of epiphenomenal of coalitional politics to a certain extent is that they're just so embarrassed by people who are part of their team, as it were, that they would rather just not confront the thing. And so in America, it is really remarkable how... The right turns a big chunks of the right turn a blind eye to the horrors that Putin is inflicting. Um, and big chunks of the left are turning a blind eye to the horrors of Hamas. Now, I'm not equating Hamas with the Palestinians. I'm not quitting being critical of Israel with being a member of Hamas. But there is this serious sense in which these people know that this group that is in some psychological sense part of their coalition is doing absolutely terrible things. So they'd much rather point at the terrible thing going on on the other side's team. And so it is astonishing to me in the American political context, this is less a Republican versus Democrat thing than a sort of right-wing influencer versus left-wing influencer thing. The number of people on the left who can talk with invincible arrogance about the and, and righteousness about the evils of settler colonialism by Israelis um, uh, and the people on the um, who uh, take Hamas aside on all that and then have a completely different view about, I shouldn't say on the left. I said the people, there are people like, you can't think settler colonialism is terrible as you define it and give Russia a free pass on it. Russia is the, probably the greatest single settler colonial power of the last thousand years. They've been taking over pieces of land and replacing the locals with Russians for millennia. Um, China comes in second, right? It's like, I think Mongolia is only 10% Mongolian now and Tibet has been ethnically cleansed. China has a huge Han supremacy problem. But uh, Israel is the villain because of this argu tendentious argument, right? And vice versa. Like, how you either you have a consistent standard about these these universalistic propositions about good and evil on the international stage or you don't but i think the only way you can explain the inconsistency is people want to talk about the people they don't like and ignore the people that are nominally in some sense part of their their popular front i think that's absolutely true and and it's this sort of tribalism facilitated in part by social media is I think also too, actually, a reflection of age. And what I mean by that is I was very struck working in Westminster in Parliament, how many MPs 
naively believed that what they were seeing on social media was somehow representative of what the public thought. I think there is a greater understanding to a degree amongst sort of teenagers or people of my generation who were sort of the first that can still remember the internet being advertised on TV. Like I remember an age without, I was, I was born in 1992. So, you know, I can remember the time without computers and mass internet. There is at least an awareness that you hear people say social media is toxic and, you know, I'm not, you know, they, they dismiss it. But what was very striking is that in those early years of adopting, say, Twitter and social media is that there wasn't that understanding amongst many uh, older folk. They just sort of absorbed it, thought about it uh, and used it genuinely, particularly in the Brexit era, to shape their politics. And I saw this all the time to shape their policy. And uh, the reason I mention that in the context of what you've just said is that really, I would argue it was the responsibility of that generation to be far more cautious with you know, having been educated before that, to be that mm-hmm. filter, to be that educating force in, in, in the dangers of this. But in a weird way, it's certain, the middle generation, not Gen Z, but sort of my generation, that are more level-headed on social media compared to the older generation and the youngest generation. Yeah, the older right. generation just believed it totally and fell into it hook, line and sinker with, with, with you know, total naivety. And the younger generation have essentially been indoctrinated by it. So it's really going to be this one chance potentially for my generation to try and put things right before we're all <laughs> doomed and uh, only ever comp- producing um, and uh, absorbing content that's 10 seconds long. Yeah, no, I mean, like the, the, the phenomenon of people being very online, that's the phrase we use in the States for people who confuse Twitter for the real world. Um, like if you just followed Twitter or if you even followed a lot of the cable news, you would think that there's this evenly divided debate about Israel versus Hamas in this country. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really not. It's a very small group of people who, because of this journalistic desire to be even handed, some, you know, some say X, others say Y. So you, even though the people saying X are this tiny, tiny group of activists, they are given sort of equal parity with, you know, the others. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why support you for Ukraine, to bring it back to that, eroded so quickly on the Republican side is, I mean, the thing I keep coming up to for the, all sorts of things in the last couple of weeks is the Yates, you know, the best lack of all conviction and the worst are full of passion and intensity. If the, all, if, if the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the other nutters are the ones who constantly fill the void with anti-Ukraine positions and the smart people just stay silent, very quickly the base of the party moves to take her position and people think, oh, that's what Republicans believe and then it becomes self-fulfilling because you have to be a good Republican. And that explains a big part of the erosion of support among Republicans is just that they weren't full-throated enough and consistent and sustained enough to keep supporting it you go back and you look at all these people, you know, Senator Mike Lee and others, they all said the right things, you know, Slava Ukraina in the first, you know, 20 days of this stuff. But then they just went about their stuff and the, 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 the ex- purest weirdo, most MAGA people, they just kept saying over and over again, this is forever war. We shouldn't be there. It's not a NATO country. And I have to point out to people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. We've actually never fought in a NATO country. <laughs> um, that's the whole point of having NATO. And um, and I, you, 
it's this sort of fundamental cowardice, I think is the right way to think about it, sort of lazy cowardice of not wanting to argue with the loudest people because it just seems so pointless and exhausting. But if you don't, then the loudest people end up, Gresham's Law wins and they end up crowding out the same people. Absolutely. And I think actually if there's a theme of our conversation today, it is the failure of people who should have known better. You know, uh, and that's become institutional, not only on an individual level, that those institutions you describe as the filter have almost fundamentally failed. And actually, the the ones that I feel most passionate about are universities. You know, I, uh, as I say, I went to Cambridge. I was blessed to do that. A, A wonderful institution. And, you know, I'm probably by nature a bit of a romantic, a bit of an idealist. And so, you know, the ivory tower, the idea of gilded learning, learning beyond being learning by rote, but genuine, enthusiastic learning for learning's sake and intellectual discussions going late into the night amongst gilded surroundings. You know, I love that. And I love that idea of people coming together and to see not necessarily just in a kind of Cambridge context, I think that's a bit unfair because there has been some work that's been done to try and rectify it. But generally, the degradation of universities has been a tragedy. And it is the failure of those in academia who should have said, regardless of their political, you you have have every right to have a political opinion. I'm not trying to say that. And even articulate it to students. I I don't, you know, I don't deny them that. But to have the responsibility to say, it's an institution we have to make sure that we encourage freedom of speech and that we stop certain behavior on campuses. It's not asking much, you know, that we accept that for a healthy polis, a healthy democracy, these things are absolutely paramount and central to our existence in a civilization, in a country, however you want to define it. That has been shred. And I was absolutely, it's only come out today, just shocked to see those uh, remarks by, I think it's the leader of Penn and Harvard today. And MIT, um, yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah, and MIT. Yeah. Uh, unwilling to say that it, or saying that it was context-driven, whether it's wrong on a campus for a student to call for genocide against Jews. I mean, that's not a free speech issue. That's just a you know fundamental, common sense, institutional <laughs> respect issue. And yet you see the, how corrosion, on poisoning of what's happened in universities. And when this all sort of erupted, I was really struck. Somebody put out uh, comparisons between the the debate around free speech and and protecting free speech whilst also the right to, uh, you know, uh, not be condemned for various things. The debate happening in, say, the 1960s led by a profound, you know, academics who at least were able to see the issues clearly and articulate them without fear of being come at by the mob. And the sort of bureaucratic, HR-driven leadership of universities today, whose fundamental priority is avoiding scandal. And yet when it comes to issues like this, what you really see is that amounts to a total willingness to condemn, sorry, to condone what should be obvious to most people is unconscionable. And for me, you know, this is, we're all on campus now, right? The numbers of people going to university have exponentially increased and their power thereof in certain areas, particularly in this country. I mean, it's exploded in in the last sort of 30 or 40 years or so. And it's led, it's meant that 
what was once, you know, a minority of, say, radical thinking people in our cultural and political life were that, a minority, whether they were hardcore Marxists in the 30s or the 60s, etc. But now that sort of way of thinking is everywhere. It's rife and it's and it's changed our reality. So I keep, I've got to sort of roll my eyes whenever I hear politicians say, oh, well, I went to university and it was the same then. But yeah, but that's when nobody went to university and you were the privileged right. few. Now, this is essentially indoctrinated a whole generation and it is that yeah. failure of people who should have known better. And I really, I weep for the decline of of these great thinking institutions. And of course, they still do amazing work on science and vaccines and all things. But in terms of the humanities, it has had a deeply corrosive and toxifying effect, which is clear, I think, for all common sense people to see. And we're really seeing now how bad things have gotten. But will things change? I'm afraid. I'm not optimistic. I think these people will get away with it. And it's really the responsibility of donors, of alumni to say enough is enough and say you, you, you can't stay as, as the head of an institution as such as, as distinguished as Harvard. You know, that means something to me as a Brit. Harvard, Yale, Penn, MIT. It's not just a domestic issue for you guys, right? This matters to your international reputation. And it should really be something that is seen in those terms. And government should be acting if they feel strongly about it, about what is happening in universities. Sorry, yeah, rant, I mean, Jonah, but no, 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 okay, I, I feel very really, passionate I mean, about this. The only thing, the only place where disagree slightly is um and i'm sure you probably agree but like um like if you're going to have a policy that says you have total free speech on campus as long as you don't disrupt classes and and, and harm anybody or whatever then i'm okay with saying that calling for genocide of jews can be allowed on campus i disagree with it right but i'm in principle yeah. i can get the argument but if your policy is it depends on the context when you're calling for genocide of the Jews, but you're not allowed to use words like master bedroom, right? Yes. <laughs> or, yes, you know, exactly. you can't. And, and so it's the, it's the double standard that according to the own logic of sort of critical race thinking is structurally anti-Semitic. If, if you say you can be expelled or punished immediately for saying men can't get pregnant, but gas the Jews is complicated. Then all of a sudden you're just basically saying, okay, there's a certain amount of intolerance towards Jews that is allowed that isn't allowed for anybody else or any other member of the coalition. The it's sort of like people who argue with me about TikTok. It's like, there's a lot of anti-Semitic stuff on TikTok. Try typing in what's happening to the Uyghurs into TikTok and you'll get nada, right? So it's, China is okay with, a lot, with promoting anti-Semitism. It's not okay with promoting, you know, uh, you know, defense, uh, the plight of the Kurds. And that's the, it's the selective editing that reveals that, you know, what's the old phrase? Behind every double standard is an unconfessed single standard. That's what's really going on here. And that's the corruption of the universities is, is, is pretending that they're applying universal values when in reality it is a um, much more tailored, edited kind of, uh, social justice kind of argument, but and I agree with you entirely about the campuses exporting this stuff. Yeah, but the question has to be the degree to which it's sort of calibrated. You know, this idea that people are like rubbing their hands, sort of like yes, you know, we're going to 
instill this sort of thinking on the next generation and the extent to which it's unconscious. And I hear people on the right who say, well, it's, you know, it's, it's fundamentally conscious. This is a sort of Marxist Gramsci cult that sees power. I think that's too far. I think actually it doesn't too much credit the idea that this is somehow a conspiracy. Uh, at the end of the day, it's unconscious because they're not thinking. And as I say, they're not thinking because they haven't been taught to think because fundamentally a lot of the people who are leading these institutions are uh, being are not academics, really, uh, you know, in the sense that our, we would understand it. I'm not saying in all cases, but they are sort of the head of PR firms formerly or whatever, or used to be working for a big organization that fundamental priority becomes about being face outward facing and being right on and not upsetting anybody, as long as that anybody is broadly within your cultural consensus of what it is or isn't it acceptable right. and and so you know exactly your tribe and so I, I i don't want to sort of give the impression that i think this is a that everybody is in cahoots and that it's a sort of plot or something like that because i think uh, I, as a historian it's when you give way to that kind of thinking, it becomes very easy to talk in conspiratorial terms. But I think it's an unconscious thing in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases of people who just genuinely believe that they're in the right and that certain things that to you and I would be something to debate is something that should be unconscionable. And as a result of that, they, it's almost impossible for them to conceive that, that, there might be, that they might be at fault in trying to suppress it. But I sincerely mean it, Jen. I, I, you know, that I, I come from a certain point of view on these issues, which will no doubt be, now we've been talking about it, listeners will, will be able to guess my, my thinking on a lot of issues. But I genuinely, sincerely would not try to censor people if I was in charge of one of these institutions in the sense of, you know, obviously certain behaviors we've already described, I would say is unacceptable. But, you know, that responsibility of saying, look, I don't agree with you, but I give your, you the right and respect to be able to think that if you so wish. Where was that kind of common sense thinking? These people were either too afraid to act or too foolish. And that to me is a real betrayal of the enlightenment values that universities are meant to uphold. And I saw it on a day-to-day -day basis, unfortunately, when I was studying um, of a sort of moral shallowness at the heart of many, many universities' infrastructures. Um, and I'm always inclined to think of my favorite novel uh, by Donna Tartt, The Secret History, uh, where you've got the academic of Julian, who, of course, in many ways represents the dream of academia, you know, a proper bookish, a proper scholar of the classical world who really instills a love of learning amongst his students. But then when he learns that his students have done wrong, and I'm sorry, this is a spoiler, so skip forward 30 seconds if you don't <laughs> want to know what happens. Um, he, uh, when he learns that a great sin has been committed by one of his students. He runs away. He packs his bag and disappears. He's a coward. And there's been too much of that, too much moral righteousness and not enough self-awareness of one's responsibilities, I would argue. And that's happened individually and it's happened institutionally as a result. All right, Francis Sternley. I mean, obviously we've gone along, keep going on much longer, um, but uh, it was great to have you here and um, I hope you'll come back. Uh, it was a real pleasure, Jonah. And just to say thank you very, very much for all of your support uh, on and offline for the podcast. I mean, our trip to the US that we did very recently would not have been anywhere near as successful without your support. And I say that, of course, as an individual for you kindly putting up in your family's home in, in, uh, <laughs> in New York, but also just in general, in terms of we've got so many listeners to Ukraine, the latest by The Telegraph that come from 
your podcasts and just hugely appreciate you pointing them in our direction. Welcome. We do appreciate you. And just, I wanted to say that, that, that often we don't have the opportunity to articulate that to you and to them, but thank you very much. It is appreciated. Happy to help. And again, listeners should go find Ukraine, the latest from the Telegraph. It's a really great podcast. And there's a uh, workman who's just outside my office who's making a lot of noise. So uh, <laughs> with that, uh, Francis, thanks again. Okay, so uh, Francis has left the studio. He's a, he's a, he's a, I mean, he's a friend. I like the guy a lot. He's like a really smart guy. Um, as I told you guys before, I spent most of a day, day drinking with him at this, this, Oxford Cambridge Club in London and, and really just had a great time with it. Um, and, uh, and he's very passionate about this stuff. So he, he, can, he can talk though. And um, I kind of felt it was great just let him go on autopilot a little bit. Um, I feel like I mangled my point about the Russia being a solar colonial power and Israel being, and then people, people having problem with one but not the other. Um, I just want to be really clear. I actually don't think that Israel is a settler colonial power in the way that its critics mean it, right? Like Israel is actually not looking, you can disagree with their historical claims, you can disagree with their biblical claims and all that kind of stuff, but in their own minds, they are not trying to expand beyond what, what most Israelis would consider their historic homeland. And, um, there's not talk of like taking over Syria or Libya or any of these kinds of things. Um, and they're not an expansionist power. They don't think they're a settler colonial power on their own terms. I agree with them. Um, this doesn't mean that they couldn't have had better policies with the West Bank or Gaza or all that kind of stuff. Those are all legitimate arguments to have. But it's not like Russia, which like expanded over the course of a century by the size of Belgium every year it is is in its the historic theology the sort of zero papism of the czars um it is an expansionist imperial imperial power that was consistently so from like the year 1000 straight through the soviet union where um they had population policies particularly under stalin um where they would replace pop, they would move populations around. They pulled the Tartars out of Crimea. You can go down a very long list um, where they were legitimately settler colonial power. Um, and they are to this day, they are moving Russian speakers and Russians into captured territories in uh, Ukraine proper to make, create facts on the ground. And if you have a, again, I'm talking about the consistency of the people who have, are totally apologetic for Russia or just turn a blind eye to it or turn a blind eye to, to, to China, but insist that this tiny little country um, in Israel is the, um, is the bleeding edge of the sphere of, uh, sphere of, of imperial evil. Um, it's very weird. And there are all sorts of quotes I've written about this before where these people say it is like, like there's this, I remember there's this woman from Black Lives Matter who said that if we don't stand up to the apartheid state, in Israel, we're all doomed. And like, I think that's insanity. Like if a, an African-American woman, whatever you think of the arguments of the, the BLM organization or Black Lives Matter more colloquially or whatever, the idea that the fate of African-Americans in America hinges on what happens 
um, in the West Bank or Gaza with Israel is just paranoid lunacy. And um, that's sort of what I'm getting at. Anyway, um, I did want to say I didn't plan on talking about all the campus stuff, but um, I was telling uh, Francis after we stopped recording that I agree with him entirely. And I've written a bunch about this, about how campuses, about campus culture has spilled out into a lot of elite circles in America. And I actually wrote a piece about this for National Review like 15, 20 years ago. Um, but like the problem with a lot of these campuses, it reminds me of um, uh, my favorite line from Bismarck where he says, you know, the trouble with the Balkans is they produce more history um, than they can consume domestically. Um, these campuses, they produce more asininity ideological asininity than they can con consume on campus or in the humanities buildings. And it spills out into other departments and then into the, the society writ large. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, the Democratic Party has a lot of its problems with, you know, the wokeism stuff and all the rest is that campus nonsense is spilling out into um, the broader Democratic Party, the Democratic coalition into government. Just this morning when we were recording, there was a story out about how 40 interns for the White House, fall interns for the White House, signed an anonymous letter demanding that Biden respond to the American people and call for a ceasefire. Um, like that kind of campus BS has no place in the White House, regardless, Democrat, Republican or anything like that. It's a perfect example of this sort of spillover of, of campus stuff because on, on a lot of elite schools, the kids are told that they should be, that being a protester, being a demonstrator is part of the educational experience. I think I've always thought that was nonsense, but now it is so instantiated and ingrained in the psychology of a lot of college kids that they think they can do this in, in, at the New York Times or the Atlantic or at, now at the White House. And it's this culture of protest and virtue signaling that I have complete contempt for, particularly on this intern case, because they're not even signing their names to this letter. So they want all the virtue signaling of, and you know, of, of their quote unquote principles, but they are, um, but they're too cowardly, um, too chicken guano, um, to actually face the consequences of taking a position. Anyway, I'm rambling. It's been talking a lot this morning. Thank you all for listening and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.